0: You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. My name is Robert Rayburn. I pastor a sister congregation of this church in Tacoma, Washington, also Faith Presbyterian Church. And it is the congregation from which Andrew Allen comes to Alaska and to the Kenai Peninsula Mission. Just a word about the sermon you're about to hear. It is a tradition that sermons preached at ordination services uh, tend to concern themselves with subjects you don't ordinarily uh, hear on a Sunday morning or hear preached on a Sunday morning, and this will be true of the sermon you are about to hear. I have two very brief texts to read. The first, the blessing of Levi by Moses before his death in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Levi, of course, as you know, the tribe that provided the priests and the Levites, the liturgical officers for the church in the ancient epoch. We're reading just verses 8 to 11. And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim, the stones with which God granted guidance to his people in those days, your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. And then from the New Testament, uh, just the first four verses of Acts chapter 6, the account of the institution of the office of deacon in early apostolic Christianity. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food, he's speaking. the pastoral ministry, we Presbyterians think primarily of preaching and pastoral care, the ministry of the Word of God in public and in private. And without a doubt, those are fundamental responsibilities of anyone who holds the office of minister in the Christian church. But there is an entire different dimension of Christian ministry, a dimension for which for long ages was appreciated by the Christian church, but is in our present day in virtual eclipse. I'm speaking of the Christian minister as the superintendent of Christian worship in God's house on God's day. Historically, Presbyterian ministers, as the ministers of other Christian traditions, have been the superintendents, of the worship of God's house, though this is much less the case in our day, even in our denomination than once it was. But I regret to say that historically, Presbyterians have thought much less of the minister's role and much less about it, his role as the director of the church's worship than have other Christian traditions. And presently, in our day of worship committees, an absolutely unprecedented development in the history of Christian worship, many of our conservative Presbyterian ministers would, I dare say, actually be surprised to learn that the worship service of the Lord's Day is the other great responsibility of their office, if not the first responsibility. There are several reasons for this. First, hard as it may be to admit that our Beloved Reformed tradition is defective in some way. The fact is, it never paid proper attention to the Lord's Day worship of the church. The traditional Puritan Presbyterian worship service, a few psalms, a very long prayer by the minister, a still longer sermon, infrequent communion, um, that, uh, that worship service was simply what was left of the magisterial Reformation worship service of John Calvin and others when everything else that enemy Christians did was taken out of it. Our forefathers took kneeling out of our worship because the Anglicans knelt to receive the bread and wine at communion and so it was thought That could foster the superstitious worship of the bread and the wine. They took out the Lord's Supper most of the time, almost all of the time. God's people gathered for worship because every Presbyterian knew that it was the sermon that was the thing that really mattered. They took out congregational prayer and response because written liturgical forms fostered routine which was supposed to be the enemy of vital spirituality. Extemporaneous was the word. What is more, Presbyterians came from the middle and higher classes, and as such they were comfortable with authority and found it easy to accept a service in which the minister did almost everything. Apart from the singing of a psalm or two, the congregation sat and listened. It did virtually nothing. The Puritan Presbyterian service was very definitely not the worship service of John Calvin, whose concern, if you remember that history, was to reform Christian worship, not only according to the teaching of God's Word, but also to the practice of the early church. For various historical reasons, it became our worship service as Presbyterians. The changes that have been introduced into that service over the past 150 years or so have happened piecemeal with comparatively little thought. They were certainly not the result of any concentrated effort to reform Presbyterian worship according to Holy Scripture and the historic practice of Christendom. Had you asked one of our ministers, In the days when I was growing up, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, why we did what we did when we did it, he would not have been able to tell you. A service so simple, a service that left the sermon the real reason for coming to church. In my growing up days, everything before the sermon was referred to by the congregation and the minister alike as the preliminaries. I say a service so simple and sermon-centered and oriented did not require a great deal of thought and Presbyterians didn't give much thought to it. We took the sacrament infrequently and so we didn't think much about the Lord's Supper either. In fact, still today, No Presbyterian has ever written a really significant book on the subject of the Lord's Supper. When we began to think new thoughts about the communion, we had to read the Anglicans and the Lutherans and the Methodists and even the Roman Catholics because our own men had provided us virtually nothing to read. Presbyterian ministers are carefully trained in biblical studies and theology, but they receive and have always received at best only very cursory preparation in the history, the biblical theology, and the historic Christian practice of Lord's Day worship. In examining a prospective minister in one of our presbyteries, the presbytery seeks to discern his level of mastery of the Bible, his knowledge of Christian theology, his agreement with the doctrine of our church. All of that of course is to the good. But our ministers are rarely if ever asked about the other principal dimension of their responsibility, that of their understanding of their convictions regarding public worship. But is this wise? Think about this. The Sunday worship service is the greatest moment in the church's weekly life. It is, as the scripture teaches us in many different ways, the great engine of Christian discipleship. It is the church's public witness to the world. It is, one that is the one time in the week when the entire church is together. It is one of the great means by which the principles of the gospel and the kingdom of God are instilled in the hearts of the church's children. It is the center of the church's public life and work. The worship service has tremendous power to inculturate Christians, to form in them the deep convictions of a biblical worldview. But only if someone puts that service together properly, explains it thoroughly and persuasively to the congregation, and then leads it effectively. But notwithstanding its obviously great importance, the nature and the purpose of that service, The principles that govern it, its parts, its order, have always been taught very superficially in Presbyterian seminaries. If you want proof of that assertion, consider this. Still today, not one of our conservative Presbyterian seminaries has a professor of worship. So far as I know, only one of them even has a faculty member who has been trained professionally in Christian liturgics. We would never allow one of our young men to be taught biblical studies or theology or church history by teachers who were not professionally trained in those fields of study. But no such training is provided for those who teach worship or required of those who teach worship. Too often, frankly, the job is given to any faculty member who has space in his schedule. Or to a local pastor, an adjunct, whose professional expertise in the discipline of Christian worship is non-existent. No wonder the practice of worship has been so susceptible to fads in our day. Few ministers have informed convictions about worship because they've never been taught the subject in any depth. That fact never troubled me until I noticed how much teaching about worship there is in the Bible and how much emphasis is placed upon it. And until I discovered that other Christian traditions are not nearly so cavalier about a minister's preparation to be the director of the church's public worship on the Lord's day. I also discovered something I did not know, that the literature, the bibliography of Christian worship its history, its controversies, its principles, its practices is fully as sophisticated, fully as complicated and fully as immense as is the biblical theological bibliography or literature. Our men know the one literature they do not know the other. Presbyterians have written many great books on Christian theology In the various areas of Biblical study, Presbyterians have excelled, but not in Christian liturgics. We are schoolboys among the Anglicans, the Lutherans, and the Methodist men. Ask most any well-read PCA minister to name five good books on the subject of divine election, and he will give you off the top of his head five solid recommendations. Ask him to name five really valuable books on the liturgy of the Sunday service. That is, five books he's actually read. And he'll not only have difficulty coming up with five, he will be able to mention in all likelihood only small, insubstantial, superficial studies. Books not to be compared with the theological tomes, that he can list off the top of his head. But those substantial valuable books on worship actually do exist. Presbyterian ministers, however, have never read them. That's the first reason why our ministers aren't clear about their responsibility as overseers of the worship of God's house. No one ever taught them that they were such overseers. No one ever took the time and it takes a great deal of time to instruct them in what that means. What worship is. How ritual functions in the life of human beings. How worship is to be offered to God. What are its parts? Its order? For what purpose is the Lord's day worship to be conducted and so on? is that which is done in worship to be divided between the minister and the people. And for what reason is that division to be made? And on and on. The second reason for the widespread, I certainly don't say universal, but widespread failure of our tradition to embrace the biblically mandated duty of the minister as the superintendent of the worship of God's house is I think a leftover and nagging prejudice against the Old Testament and it's priesthood. Somehow we've been allowed to think that the work of the priests in the ancient epoch was quite different from the work of Christian ministers today, but it was not. The Old Testament priest may have been a type or an enacted prophecy of the priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, but in his ordinary work, he had the same duties, he had the same office as the Christian minister today. And what were those duties? They were to teach the word of God and they were to oversee the worship of God's house. What is more, the parts of that ancient worship, song, prayer, offering, word, sacrament, all carefully arranged in a theologically crafted order are the same parts we find in the worship of apostolic Christianity and the worship of the early church. There have been no doubt changes of form but the substance has always been the same and even the forms have not changed that much. Remember according to the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul participated in the sacrificial worship of the Jerusalem temple 30 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What better demonstration could there be that Israel's ancient worship was in fact evangelical worship, entirely agreeable to the principles and the practices of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the blessing of Levi, which we read from Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, Moses described the twofold function of the priest. The descendants of Levi, the priests and the Levites, that is, were to teach the word of God and they were to offer incense and sacrifices, which is to say they were to preach and they were to conduct the public worship of God's house. We shy away today from the word priest, but remember the English word priest is simply a rough transliteration of the Greek word presbyter, which is the term used in the New Testament for men we nowadays call ministers or pastors. Paul, for example, in Romans 15 doesn't hesitate to describe himself as a priest because he is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might have a salutary effect if we were to begin referring again to our ministers as priests. It is biblical terminology after all and it conveys a sense of the office they have that we may have lost. We find this same correlation between the Old Testament priesthood and the New Testament ministry strikingly emphasized also in the other text we read this morning, Acts 6, 1 through 4. The office of deacon was established in the apostolic church, we read in the fourth verse, so that the apostles would not be distracted from their primary ministry of the word and prayer. Now what is meant there by prayer? We're likely to think that they meant they would devote themselves to preaching and to praying for the progress of the kingdom of God. No doubt they did spend time, much time in such prayer. These were men of prayer. But that's not what is meant by prayer in Acts 6.4. Prayer is preceded by the article, we will devote ourselves to preaching and the prayer capital P, by which is meant, as any commentator on Acts will tell you, the public, the corporate worship of the church. When the Anglicans call their manual of public worship the Book of Common Prayer, they are using the term in the sense in which it is used in Acts chapter 6 verse 4. In other words, the apostles who were the predecessors and the exemplars of the Christian ministry saw themselves as having the two fundamental responsibilities that the priests of Israel had before them. Public and private instruction in the word of God and the superintendence of the public worship of the people of God. Because these responsibilities were so time-consuming Another office was created in the church to ensure that the church's charity would be carefully and wisely overseen and the work of doing so would not distract the Christian priesthood from its proper work of preaching and leading worship. That should not surprise us as the scripture demonstrates many times in many ways the life of the church has been fundamentally the same from the beginning. The realities of God, the human heart, sin, salvation, the spiritual world in which we live are today as they have been since Genesis chapter 4. So it should surprise no one that the Christian ministry, an office that trades in these unchanging realities, should be today largely what it has always been. Let no one take our crown in emphasizing the importance of the sacred work of preaching the word of God. But let us also not forget that the sermon is but part of a properly ordered service of divine worship and that entire service has more to do with the spiritual health, with the growth of the Christian faith, with the deepening obedience of Christian people, than most American Christians realize. So today, let me briefly remind you of the minister's responsibility for the public worship of the church, which according to the Bible, is the great engine of your Christian life. If you'd asked a typical evangelical Christian in the days of my youth, what was it that made the difference between an outstanding and a mediocre Christian life? He would very likely have answered you, your quiet time. A tract entitled Quiet Time, first published by InterVarsity Christian Press in 1947, and then in print for decades thereafter, was widely circulated among young Christians in those days. Personal, private communion with God every day, prayer and Bible reading. That would tell the tale. We cut our teeth on the teaching of Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators and others like him who argued that the daily daily devotions would separate the men from the boys in the Christian life. And there's of course much to commend throughout the Bible, much to commend the importance of private devotion. Without question, prayer and scripture are to be a Christian's daily life. But notwithstanding their importance, Daily devotions are not the principal instrument of your discipleship, of your growth in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. If you interrogate the Bible, it will answer time and again that the greatest difference is going to be made by the worship of God's house, by God's people together on the Lord's day. Sunday worship is the foremost engine of faith and godliness. I suspect that just as relatively few American evangelicals thought that 50 years ago, just as few think so today. And no wonder. Christians haven't been taught to believe this. And the Christian ministry has not approached the worship service with this conviction. I certainly was never taught the critical importance of corporate worship when I was being raised in the church. But it is that important. The Bible says it repeatedly. Why, after all, does the Bible contain such immense tracts of teaching and regulation concerning this worship? Why is the corruption of that worship regarded by the prophets as such a capital error? Because that worship is vital to the spiritual life and welfare of God's people. Private worship and family worship, the spiritual exercises of parents with their children, are certainly important. They must be done. The Bible leaves us in no doubt about that. But at the same time, it says very clearly that the corporate worship of the congregation is more important. It's the main thing. In a variety of ways and in many different contexts, we are taught what we read in Psalm 87, verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. The Puritan, David Clarkson, a pastoral colleague of John Owen, preaching on that text from Psalm 87, argued from it that of the three spheres of Christian worship, private, family, and church, the corporate worship of the church was much the more important. His sermon was entitled Public Worship to be Preferred And in the sermon, he offered these arguments, among others. The Lord is more glorified in public worship. There is more of the Lord's presence in that worship. In that worship are to be found the clearest manifestations of God. There is more spiritual advantage to be got by God's people. In public worship, the Lord works his greatest wonders. That worship is nearest to the worship of heaven. And the promises of God's blessing upon his people are most often made to them in public worship. It's certainly interesting that all the worship that we are given to see in heaven in the book of Revelation is the private and, or is the public and corporate worship of the congregation. Surely this fact, that corporate worship more powerfully serves the interest of your soul that accounts for David's remarkable statement in Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Now ask this question honestly of yourselves. If the sentence began for you, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, blank. What would you put how would you conclude that sentence? David says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. However unlikely it might be that contemporary Christians would ever think or say the same thing it's important to ask why David said it. He once described himself as a man of prayer. No doubt much of his praying was done when he was alone. But it was worship in God's house that was the master passion of his life. Confident as he was that the Lord was with him in all times and all circumstances. Remarkable as the demonstrations of the Lord's presence had been on the battlefield, in the wilderness, even on his bed at night, he still much preferred the sanctuary. Read the 63rd Psalm. And take note of how David talks there of having seen the Lord in the sanctuary, of there having beheld God's power and glory. He's in the desert when he writes that psalm, but he longs to be at worship in and with the church. Private praise and worship is throughout the Bible regarded as more a kind of rehearsal for the same praise in the sanctuary where it is more glorious, more edifying, more powerful in its effects, made so by the involvement of many more believers with you, by the physical setting, by the Lord's promised greater presence. There's so much for us to remember, you and I, and there is so much that we are always forgetting. There is so much that we should feel powerfully, and so much that we so often hardly feel at all. And our Christian lives are frequently pale and weak. Our devotion is distracted, our obedience is fitful because we don't remember and we don't feel as we ought to remember and as we ought always to feel. However good our memories may be in some respects, however like steel traps, we may hold on to real or imagined grievances, in matters of the Word and Spirit, our memories are more like sieves. We don't hold in our mind and in our heart everything that we ought always to be remembering about God, about His grace, about Christ, about the cross, about the resurrection, about the Lord's intercession for us at the right hand, about His coming again. We're always forgetting for days at a time that we will have to stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil, and receive what is due us for them. We don't remember what our Savior has done for us. We don't feelingly recall His great love and sacrifice. We forget for hours on end, for days on end, That the great significance of everything we do through any particular day is its consequence in the world to come. And so we have neither the wit nor the clear-headedness nor the determination nor the consolation and hope in the midst of sorrow and trial nor the joy in our salvation that we ought to have and know we ought to have. And so to this end, the Lord has appointed the church's worship on the Sabbath day as a primary means by which the force of truth is renewed and again felt in our hearts and our lives. In the gathering of the congregation, it's kneeling and standing before God. In the scripture that is read and preached, in the hymns that are sung, in the prayers and the offerings that are given, in the Lord's Supper, The Lord Himself draws near and He makes Himself known again to us. We see Him as David said He had. We behold His power and glory. Here in the Lord's house, the very nature of Almighty God, His creation of the world, His redemption of His people, the promises He made to us, our eternal future are realized again and afresh in our hearts. We're given feelingly to think it all through again in a setting in which the truth takes power from the communion of the saints in the presence of God. I often remind my congregation that if they were somehow able to see their sins being lifted off their soul at that moment in the Lord's Day service When they have together confessed them to God and asked for the forgiveness of them, they would never doubt that moment is the greatest moment of their every week. If they could see, you could see your scarlet hearts becoming white again at that moment, you would never Leave the church without a spring in your step. You would listen so much more attentively to the sermon because you would feel this great debt of love and obligation to God and you would want to know how to discharge it. You would come to the Lord's Supper not to receive the forgiveness of your sins. You already received that. Your heart is white and clean. You would come to be nourished in the presence of Jesus by His Spirit to conclude the entirety of your offering to Him with thanksgiving once again for His love and His salvation. But for this, no matter what the modern church seems to be telling us, for this you need a Christian minister called and appointed for this work by the Lord Himself. Absolutely. It's His responsibility to teach And preach the word of God to the world and to the church. It's his sacred calling to exemplify that truth. Before his congregation with his own life. And it's his calling to care for the saints of God. But it is also his calling. Sacred calling. His calling. And no one else's. As the superintendent of the worship of God's house. To every Sunday morning. Pull back the veil that separates God's people from the living God and give them the sight of him once again. Alice Parker, the influential matriarch of American church music, fully aware as she is of how congregational singing has so sadly declined in the American church, Alice Parker observes There are still churches that sing very well. And it is invariably because someone expects them to. Well, that someone is invariably the minister. And in so many other ways, there are congregations that pray well. Congregations that confess their sins well. Congregations that give their tithes and offerings well congregations that hear the sermon well, congregations that come to the table of the Lord well, and always it's because someone expects them to and invariably that someone is their minister. Worship is not an easy thing to do well. We know that from long experience. Many features of contemporary evangelical worship services actually work against the great purposes of the Lord's day worship. Many worship services now diminish rather than enhance our sense of the greatness of God. They fail to convey to the heart either the seriousness of salvation or the true glory and wonder of it. They inspire neither true devotion nor deep gratitude. They shrink our faith Concentrating as they do on ourselves rather than on God. But knowing how to do better than that is the work of a lifetime. It is the work that requires serious, concentrated study by someone who knows it is his responsibility and who has the intellectual and the spiritual, and the theological, and the biblical tools to understand what he is reading and studying, to master the literature, and to appreciate his own role as the voice of God in the people's worship. That man from the very beginning, 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years before that, has been the Christian priest or minister. You need your minister to lead you. Individually and together to God. You need him to know both from Holy Scripture and from the long experience of the Christian church how that is best done. You need him to care that your time together before the Lord on the Lord's Day is everything it ought to be and everything that God will want to reward. You need him to do all that. And so he needs to do it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for ourselves and we pray for everyone in this room who is a minister of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray particularly this morning for the Kenai Mission Church. And we ask, O God, that you would form there, under the direction of its new minister, a community of people who love to gather on the Lord's day to worship your holy name who will worship you in a way that visitor that will convince visitors that this is a people who both fear God and love God this is a people who love to hear his word love to sing his praise love to commune with the present Jesus Christ by his spirit at the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are transformed by this worship because the Lord is there and they are before him and speaking to him and hearing from him in that way that you have appointed for your people and that good and wise and faithful congregations have exercised and appreciated for these many thousands of years. Make such a church on the Kenai Peninsula, we pray, and make such a minister of Andrew Allen. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.